Well, friends, today we're here to celebrate uh, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. It's a day that Christians all over the world come together to remember that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. But friends, the reality is, I'm not sure about you, but as I look at the news and I look at the world around me, I find very few reasons to truly celebrate. In fact, I feel more hopeless than anything at all. You know, it used to be that we believed in progress, that things would get better and better and better in the world. But the last 10 years have shown us quite brutally that that isn't true. We still believe in progress, but we're a bit more chastened about what that progress looks like. There's so many reasons for us to feel hopeless as we look around. It's been a year since COVID-19 has shut down most travel. Millions of people are still being affected by covid Certain parts of the world, there's a second and a third wave that is more deadly than the first. The Paria military power is back in power in Myanmar, and they're killing their own citizens. We have stories of abuse within and without the church that has rocked us and that has left us dismayed and confused. Then we read about a train that was derailed in Taiwan, killing 50 people. The rescue is still ongoing. A global recession is looming. There's so many reasons why we can tend towards hopelessness rather than hope as we look at the world. And then maybe we look at our own lives. And we're in jobs that we hate, relationships that we can't figure out, and hobbies that we don't enjoy anymore. We're feeling stuck. We're feeling hopeless. We're feeling despair rather than hope. And you tell me today that we're here to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But friends, what if I were to tell you that Easter or Resurrection Sunday is God's answer, is God's precise answer to all of the hopelessness that you sense on your heart and that you see in the world today? New York Pastor Tim Keller puts it this way, death, pandemic, injustice, social breakdown, we again desperately need a stone of hope. And there is no greater hope possible than to believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Keller says this, If you grasp this great fact of history, then even if you find things going dark, this hope becomes a light for you when all other lights go out. Is he exaggerating like most preachers do? Or is he on to something? Friends, give me a few moments as we step through these short eight Bible verses at the end of Mark's gospel. And I want to make a case for you that, that he's onto something. That if we truly believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, that is the answer to the hopelessness that we sense on our hearts and that we see in the world. These eight verses present to us a simple thesis that I would like to unpack for us this morning. And it's simply this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fact of history that brings healing to the world and hope to your heart. Let me say that again. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fact of history that brings healing to the world and hope to your heart. So let's look at these verses very quickly on the three headings. History, healing, and hope. History, healing, and hope. Come with me to Mark chapter 16, verse 1. And the story begins this way, when the Sabbath was passed. The Sabbath was a Saturday that the Jewish people would set aside to worship God and do nothing. 
they could not go to the tomb on the Saturday. So when the Sabbath was passed, verse 2, on the first day of the week, that is a Sunday much like this, three women, take note of that, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices to go and anoint bought the body of Jesus Christ. Now, why did they go to anoint the body of Jesus Christ? This was to reduce the stench of the rotting body. But the Bible tells us that when they got to the tomb, verse 4, they found that the stone had been rolled away. They were shocked. They were surprised. They entered the tomb, verse 5, but instead of seeing the dead body of Jesus Christ, they see a young man dressed in a white robe. He's an angel. And he says to them in verse 6, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. The tomb was empty. Now friends, I want you to take notice of two particular things here in the text. Number one, firstly, that the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the first ones to come and realize that Jesus was not dead, that he had risen, were women. Now, why is this significant? Now, this is not my point of view. I'm just giving you the facts, okay? So please don't stone me. But in those days, in first century Palestine, a woman's testimony wasn't even admissible as evidence in court. It was deemed unreliable. So friends, if you were a PR agent and you were trying to uh, put your best foot forward to present a case for this new religion, and you were putting together the documents for that religion, you would not record that the first eyewitnesses were women. Why, friends? Because in those days, that would undermine the very testimony that you're trying to put forward. In fact, New Testament scholar Tom Wright, he argues that the early church must have been under great pressure to remove this account that the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ were women. But they could not do so. Do you know why? Because the account was too well known, because the account was true. So friends, this is not a PR exercise. What the writer of Mark's gospel is doing is recording history as it happened, whether or not the world out there found it credible or not. He was just recording history. The reason why he records that the first eyewitnesses were women was because they were women. That is exactly what happened. He is recording history. Now, friends, the women were not the only eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were not the only ones that saw Jesus risen from the dead. Fifteen to twenty years later, the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 to 6. And in those verses, he tells us that Jesus appeared to individuals, to a small group of 12 disciples, and then to more than 500 people all at once. Now, why is that significant? Well, the Apostle Paul was writing 15 to 20 years from the event itself. Some of those 500 witnesses would have still been alive. And if he was lying, all they had to do was say, no, I wasn't there. They could disprove Paul's testimony, but they did not do so because what Paul was writing was history. He was reporting truth. They corroborated his testimony rather than disprove it written a very short while, just before, just after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the first detail that you need to hold in your mind is that there were eyewitnesses, and the first eyewitnesses were women. 
what the Bible writers are trying to do here is not give you fiction, is not make you warm and fuzzy, is not even to persuade you. They're writing truth as it happened. Now, first detail. Second detail I want you to take note. Look at verse 6. They were expecting to see the body of Jesus Christ, but they were there. And verse 6 says, He is not there. So not only were there eyewitnesses, but the tomb was empty. These two details are so crucial for us to grasp, my friends. Tom Wright puts it this way. When you take into account the eyewitnesses and the empty tomb together, that makes it even more historically certain that the resurrection of Jesus Christ really did happen. They're not giving us fiction, my friends. They're not giving us sentiment. They're giving us facts. They're giving us history. Why? Well, see, friends, if you had an empty tomb, but no eyewitnesses, you'd assume that the body was stolen. The tomb is empty, no eyewitnesses, the body is stolen. But the fact is, there was just no motivation at all from anybody to steal the body. The Romans and the religious leaders, they wouldn't have wanted to steal the body. They wanted Jesus dead. They did not want the fledgling church to claim that the Savior had risen from the dead. To quash that movement, all they had to do if they stole the body was to produce the body of Jesus Christ. So the Roman authorities and the religious leaders had no motivation whatsoever to steal the body of Jesus. How about the disciples? Maybe they had skin in the game. If this religion was true, they can make lots of money, like we see what's happening in religious circles nowadays. Now friends, the truth is, for the first three centuries of the church, being a Christian didn't just cost you money, it cost you your life. Eleven out of the twelve disciples of Jesus Christ were executed for believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel accounts tell us that after Jesus died, they thought he was a liar. They were dejected. They went back to fishing. They went back to their original um, life because they thought that Jesus had lied to them. But then overnight, after Resurrection Sunday, suddenly they become a missionary force that takes the gospel to the ends of the earth, the reason why we're here today, and they were even willing to die for their faith. There was simply no motivation, my friends, for the Romans or the religious leaders or even the disciples to steal the body. It simply doesn't make sense. If there's an empty tomb, but no eyewitnesses, you could assume that the body was stolen, but there was no motivation at all for the body to be stolen. Now, secondly, if you had eyewitnesses, but no empty tomb, you'd probably assume that they were hallucinating. Everybody kind of has these hallucinations, seeing loved ones that have gone ahead of us. But the thing is, there were eyewitnesses and there was also an empty tomb. The body of Jesus simply wasn't there. If the body of Jesus was there, all the authorities had to do to discredit the hysteria of this growing movement was to produce the rotting corpse of Jesus. And it would have ended there and then. But they couldn't. You know why? Because he is not there. You have eyewitnesses' accounts and you have an empty tomb. And taken together, this presents to us a powerful historical case that what they were recording is not fiction. 
what they were giving us was not mere sentiment to make us feel good, warm and fuzzy on, a, on an Easter Sunday morning. What they were giving to us is historical fact. Empty tomb, eyewitnesses. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just a nice religious sentiment. It is religious fact. It is true. And if it's true, it changes everything. Now, friends, I've been told that uh, I've been giving too many spoilers as I quote movies and uh, stuff that I watch on Netflix. So I'm going to give a spoiler alert right now. Cobra Kai, is that okay? Okay, Cobra Kai? Okay, okay, okay. Now, in Cobra Kai, Daniel LaRusso and Johnny Lawrence, they have been bickering for 35 long years. Right? They have separate karate dojos. They're rivals. They all shared the same girlfriend at one point, a lady by the name of Allie Mills. And I think it's in the eighth episode. Allie comes on the scene, Allie with an eye. And she sees them bickering after 35 years. And she, being the wise one, comes to them and says, this is exactly the problem. You say one thing, and you say the opposite. And you both think there's only one side to the story. And Johnny Lawrence thinks he's smart. He says, I know, I know. There's actually two sides of the story. But Ali Meals says this. No, there's three. There's your side, there's your side, and then there's the truth. There's your side, there's your side, and then that's the truth. And from that point on in the story, they begin to slowly stop bickering, and they started coming together. You see, friends, some people say, hey, you know what, Z, I like that part of the Christian faith, but not that part. I like the grace part. I don't like the, you know, the judgment part. But other people, a bit more hardcore, say, I like the judgment part. I don't quite like the grace part. Okay, I like this part, but not that part. Now, in a sense, your personal sentiment is very important. All our personal sentiments are very important. But friends, our personal sentiments are not all important. What is important is not your side or your side. What's most important is the truth. In The Social Dilemma, I quoted this before, Tristan Harris, the president of the Center of Humane Technology, he said this. Now, The Social Dilemma is a very scary documentary. It shows us how social media is actually dividing people rather than uniting people. And he says this, if we don't agree on what is true, or if there is such a thing as truth, we're toast. This is the problem underneath other problems. Because if we can't agree on what's true, we can't navigate out of any of our problems. The truth matters. That is the problem underneath the problem. And without acknowledging the truth, we will never be able to navigate ourselves out of the problems that we face in this world. Friends, the claim of Christianity is not that Jesus Christ's resurrection is simply a nice notion. The claim of Christianity is that Jesus Christ really rose from the dead. He lived, he died, and he did rise again from the dead. And because he did, it gives us a power to navigate out of all our problems. Once again, Tim Keller puts it this way. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fact 
of history. And that's the first thing we need to know. The gospel writers, the Bible writers were not recording fiction. They were recording history. My friends, knowing that the resurrection is history is not enough to have the hope that we need in a hopeless world. Not only do we need to know what the resurrection is, we need to know what the resurrection does. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fact of history, but it does something in human history. It unleashes healing into a broken world, and it can give you hope for your broken heart. So second point, healing. Look at verse 1 again. Friends, why do you think the women went to anoint Jesus' body with spices in verse 1? It would reduce the stench of the body. But think along with me. There was simply no practical reason for it. He was dead. He would stay dead with or without the anointing of the spices. And did you notice that the women didn't really have a plan either? Look at verse 3. It says that they went and they said to each other, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? There were Roman soldiers guarding the tomb, a huge stone that had been rolled in front of the tomb. They didn't really have a plan. All they wanted to do was go to the tomb and anoint the body of Jesus to remove some of the stench. No practical reason, no plan, but they went ahead anyway. Why do you think they were doing this? Friends, very recently I went to visit my mother-in-law's grave. She passed away in August. Uh, We went there recently and we cleaned up the place, made sure that it's nice and spiffy, put some flowers there. Why did we do it? Is there any practical reason for that? No. But it's love. It's devotion. And this was what Jesus' disciples, these women, were doing. They were coming, expressing their devotion to Jesus. He had died. Their hearts were broken. Their lives were in disarray. This was the man that they had given their lives to for three long years. This was the Messiah they had trusted in for three long years. Now he's dead. Their hearts are broken. Their lives are torn apart. What more can they do? They can only come in this final act of devotion to try and make sense of all of that sadness and all of that brokenness. But what does Jesus give them? He gives them far more than what they expected. Look at verse 4. When they arrived, the stone had been rolled away. And verse 6 tells us, You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. He's alive. You don't need to weep anymore. You don't need to mourn anymore. He's alive. Your broken life can be put together again. You see, friends, Jesus' death had seemed to make a mockery of everything they had done and everything they had given their lives to over the last three years. They had given everything to Jesus and now He dies? It made a mockery of their entire lives these last three years. And by rising from the dead, He shows them, no, sisters, it was not mockery. It was right for you to give your lives to Me because I died and I'm risen Again, and friends, do you realize, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, how death 
seems to make a mockery of everything we give our lives to here and now. You give yourself to your work. You give yourself to your family. You give yourself to your friends. Some of you give yourself to your country. Maybe you give yourself to your faith. And then you die. And in a generation, you are forgotten. Don't you see how death seems to make a mockery of everything precious to us, everything important to us, everything that we give our lives to? And friends, the Bible actually tells us that that's the reality we live in because we have tried to live our lives independently from God. In Romans 6.23, the Bible tells us that the wages or the result of sin is death. Sin is saying to God, I don't want you. I don't want to live the way that you want me to live. I want to live my own way. Sin is rejecting the author of life. And when you reject the author of life, the only thing left for you is death. And it's a death that makes a mockery of everything precious to you and everything important that you give yourself to. But friends, it doesn't have to be this way. That's why we're here on Easter Sunday. Because Jesus is risen from the dead. Because Jesus is not dead. And the women have not given their lives to something that was meaningless. They've given their lives to something that is all-powerful and all-precious. And we too can experience the same thing. Because the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.20 that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits, is the first installment, is the down payment guaranteeing something that's going to happen in the future. And what's going to happen in the future is the resurrection of every person that has believed in Jesus Christ. Friends, you think Christianity is talking about life after death. After you die, your body goes into the ground, you go to heaven and you live there for all eternity. That's not what Christianity teaches, my friends. Yes, when you die, your body goes to the ground, your your spirit goes to heaven, but we're not talking about life after death. Our final hope, as N.T. Wright puts it, is life after life after death. Because the final end state is not sitting on a cloud somewhere immaterial, playing a harp. The final state, because of Jesus' resurrection, is the resurrection of every person that has believed in Jesus Christ. The final state is an embodied existence. Is you and I raised even as Jesus was raised. It's the world renewed and restored to its original form and better. Just a quick review. Genesis 1 and 2. God made man and the world good. He blesses the world. He tells man, take care of this world. Genesis 3, we sin against God. And because we sin against God, there is death. And more than death, there is a curse on all creation. Jesus Christ enters the story. He lives the perfect life. He dies for our sins, meaning that our sins are forgiven. He rises from the dead, meaning that death has been defeated. But because he has done this, it also means that the curse of creation is being lifted. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ unleashes 
healing into the world. And not the kind of healing that you get at a healing rally. It's talking about the kind of healing where this broken world is being put together. And the final end state for us, friends, is resurrection. One thing I do whenever we visit the cemetery is to look at all these graves of people that had gone ahead of us. It's a very sobering exercise. You see some young children among them. You see some people who lived into their 80s and 90s. You see some taken in their prime. And one of the things I like to do is to imagine the final day. Because what will happen for those who are in Christ is not that they will stay underground, but that these graves will break open. And these men and women who have believed in Jesus will be resurrected just as Jesus was resurrected. And Revelation 21 verse 1 and 2 tells us that the entire universe will be renewed. Our hope, our final hope is not heaven. Our final hope is a new heavens and a new earth that comes because Jesus is risen from the dead. Easter Sunday, my friends, is a guarantee, is a down payment of what will happen to you and to me who believe in Christ and to all of creation. Tim Keller puts this, there will be a future triumph over death and a new remade material world. Second spoiler alert, it's like Kumandra in Raya and the Dragon. This beautiful, luscious land that had been devastated by the Droon. When the Droon are pushed back and the people come alive again, it's returned to its luscious beauty and the tribes are united as one. And that is the healing, my friends, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ releases into the world. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Is this too far-fetched, friends? Not intelligent enough? Like, how could an intelligent person really believe that all of us are going to be raised from the dead? You have to be silly to believe something like this. Friends, you really want to compare PSLE score? O-level results? A-level results? University, PhD? You really want to do that? No, friends, that's not what is most important. It's not about intelligence, friends. It's about what's true and what's false. And if Jesus really did rise from the dead as a historical fact, then it's very plausible and very realistic to believe that you and I will be raised from the dead and all that is sad will become unsad and all that is broken will become unbroken. And therefore, all that we do now will have an impact into all eternity. In the gladiator, Marcus Aurelius said this to rouse his troops. He said, what we do now on earth echoes in eternity. And because Jesus is risen, this is true. We can believe this because Jesus was risen from the dead. And if that is true, this can also be true, that we will be raised from the dead. And friends, truth is often stranger and fiction. You just have to look at the last 10 years with a global pandemic and world politics to convince you that the truth is often stranger than fiction. So friends, don't write it off just because you think it's silly, you think it's unintelligent, 
You think it's not plausible? Look at the evidence. Search. Ask the questions. What Jesus presents here, what the Bible writers present here, is historical truth that has an existential reality for all the world. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fact of history that brings healing to the world. And finally, that gives hope to your heart and to my heart. Look at verses 9 to 20, friends, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 16. Do you realize that there's a little note there that says that these are not in the earliest manuscripts? Well, most likely, Mark's Gospel ends in verse 8. Not on a high note, but on a low note. It says the women fled. They were trembling. They were astonished. And they were afraid. Hey, Z, this is a big kind of a... You talk about resurrection, so power, power, and then suddenly, how come they are afraid? And, and this is how Mark's gospel ends. So how does this bring us hope? How can this make us hopeful? My friends, it brings us hope because these are the kinds of people that Jesus offers resurrection power to. Not the strong, but the weak. Not the fearless, but the fearful. Not the sufficient, but the needy. Not to the sinless, but to the sinful. Not to the healthy, but to the sick. These are the kinds of people that God offers resurrection life to. These are the kinds of people God uses to take his message to the world. He uses those who are weak, made strong, fearful, made fearless, needy, made sufficient, and sinful, made holy to do his will because it is all of grace. Look at verse 7, friends. The angel tells the women, Go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. What happened to the disciples when the Romans came to get Jesus? They didn't stand by his side. They didn't say, hey, don't take this guy, he's mine. They fled, each of them. And do you notice that the angel singles out Peter? Do you know why? Peter was the epitome of cowardice and betrayal. He said to Jesus, no matter what, even if they all deny you, I will stay faithful to you, even to the point of death. But this Peter ends up denying Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. And the angel says that Jesus is going ahead to Galilee. What is he doing in Galilee? Well, the other Gospels fill out the story for us in John chapter 20 and 21. He goes to Galilee to get them. He goes to Galilee to forgive them. He goes to Galilee to restore them, to renew them, to reinvigorate them with a hope like no other, the hope of the resurrection. Years later, this same Peter will say in 1 Peter 1.3, He, God, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know why it's hopeful? Because, friends, this same resurrection power is offered to you 
It's offered to me. It's offered to us. It's not offered to the strong, but to the weak. It's not offered to the sufficient, but the needy. It's not offered to the sinless, but the sinful. Which means you, even you, can have his resurrection hope in you. In the movie Troy, Achilles, just before that epic battle, he's trying to rouse his troops. And he says to his men, Let no man forget how menacing we are. We are lions. Do you know what's there beyond that beach? Immortality. Take it. It's yours. And the men get roused. They go into battle. They get killed. And they attain, in Achilles' words, immortality. Friends, do you know what the difference is with us? We are not the ones doing battle to gain immortality. The one who did battle for us to gain immortality for us is Jesus Christ. He came at Christmas to live the perfect life that you and I could not live. He died on the cross on Good Friday to bear the punishment that you and I deserved. And on Easter Sunday, he rose again, defeating death, defeating the devil, and bringing resurrection power into our lives. Do you know what's there beyond, not the beach, but the empty tomb? Immortality, friends. Take it. It's yours. And the only thing you need to have it is need. The only thing you need is to come and say to Jesus, yes, what you did on the cross and what you did in rising from the dead was for me. And friends, whether for the first time or for the thousandth time, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fact of history that brings healing to the world and hope to your heart and mine. Will we trust Him today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for a reminder from your word of the power of the resurrection that is available to all who believe in you. We pray, Father, on Easter Sunday that you would make this reality burn in our hearts. Make it radioactive so that we can have a hope in our hearts that takes us into the world to work for healing, to work for justice, to work for reconciliation, to work for joy. Make us truly, Lord, a people of faith who believe not in fables, not in fiction, but in historical reality as it's given to us in your word and in history. Help us to live out the power of the resurrection as individuals and as a church. May we be those that seek justice, do mercy in this world, seek out reconciliation and unity. Father, we continue to pray as your people that you would make wars cease to the ends of the earth. We bring before you the stock situation in Myanmar. And we say to you, Lord, we are grieved. We say to you, Lord, that we want it to come to an end. We say, Father, that it is not right for civilians to die at the hands of the military. And we pray, Father, that you would intervene 
that peace would be restored in this land and that your people will once again be able to worship freely. Father, we also ask for your help and healing in Taiwan as you read about the train disaster and the many who have been killed and the many who are being rescued. Lord, we ask that you would work in that situation, that they would receive all the help they need, all the medical attention, that all the rescue crew would have all the equipment and all the skill to free the people that are trapped there. Father, finally, we ask you as a church, as a people, to use us in any way that you please. As we consider once again the power of the resurrection to give us hope, we pray that we would not keep that hope to ourselves, but we would take it to a hurting, needy world. In Jesus' name we pray.